Blog Talk Radio. This is Marty Oakley of the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the TS Radio Network. Our show tonight is Whistleblowers, and it is the USDA Hour, and we're going to be talking about the reform of the Office of Civil Rights, and I am stunned that such an office should even have to exist in a federal agency. Well, of course, it's privately owned and just contracted to the federal complex, but that aside, uh, these people should be toeing the mark, setting the standard, and instead they're the bottom of the barrel, my opinion. Anyway, these shows are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, an annual event in Washington, D.C. this year from July 29th through the 31st. And, of course, it will be online again because of this fake virus thing. Uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, um, my host tonight is Lawrence Lucas, and he's quite an expert on this topic and has led the charge for many years to get the wrongs in the Civil Rights Division corrected. It has caused black and other minority farmers enormously the mismanagement of this agency and this office. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to Lawrence. And Lawrence, take it away. Okay, thank you again, Marty, for allowing us to uh, come on the show and for the many years that you've allowed whistleblowers to um, have a voice and be heard uh, throughout the federal government as well as employees, as well as especially farmers, especially black farmers at USDA. Uh, I also want to thank Marcel Reed, who has always been, who is, who is the one who has been putting together the Whistleblower Summit in Washington on Capitol Hill, who also helped to make this uh, possible. Tonight we have, uh, we're fortunate enough to have a very uh, crowded audience, and I think um, it's because of the subject matter. Tonight we have Emma Scott from Harvard University, we have Nate Rosenberg, a writer, editor, a researcher. Uh, we hope to have Bryce Stuckey on. Um, he's having problems getting in because of the uh, the busy lines. And um, and and uh, the one there are two reports that um, that we are going to be talking about. The other person who is joining us tonight is Catherine Joyce. Uh, Catherine has been a writer about uh, many of the subjects dealing with USDA for many years. Uh, it goes back to uh, approximately, uh, she did a story out here, you, you, can't, you can't, about women in the Forest Service, she said, 
out here, no one can hear you scream. Uh, that talked about uh, the pain and suffering and the abuse going on in the USDA Forest Service, and it featured uh, Alicia Dabney, Dennis, uh, Denise Rice, and uh, uh, I think uh, Mrs. Uh, Sidlow, uh, Sido. Anyway, I may have pronounced her wrong, but she'll she'll straighten me out on that. Um, and she also did a story in two. 2018, uh, I think it was August 29, Forest Services silences, silencing, silencing women. But we hear a lot about the issue of the black farmer. We hear a lot about um, the issues of the abuse going on at USDA. Um, I want to kind of start with and have maybe – uh, have Catherine Joyce to speak up um, first because she may be feeling a bit under the weather and she may not stay on, and I don't want to lose her uh, in this conversation, and I hope she's feeling better now and she can stay on for the length of the show. But um, there are two things that we're going to discuss tonight, and one is the Harvard study, and the other is a newspaper article and Catherine uh, Joyce, uh, Bryce Stuckey, and Nate Rosenberg will be discussing that. Uh, let me just start with uh, Catherine Joyce. And Catherine, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, can hear you very clearly. How are you feeling, number one? Oh, I'm I'm okay. I'm just uh, uh, happily. Uh, suffering um, a little bit of side effects after taking the vaccine. So just a, a little under the weather, but it's it's all for a good reason. Okay. Well, uh, what I'd like for you to do is um, we've had, um, and, and, and I'm going to ha- have uh, Mrs. Uh, Emma Scott come on after, after that, but give me an idea as to um, the story, the recent story in Mother Jones, and how you got involved with writing it and kind of give people a feeling as to the importance of the kind of research that the three of you all have put together. Sure. Um, and thank you so much for, for having us and, and for, you know, featuring this, this issue where we're all really excited to be here. And I know um, Nate and Bright will, will speak to this as well. Um, I, I came on to, to working on this piece uh, a little bit later in the game. Um, Nate and Bryce, as, as they will uh, surely explain themselves, had already started um, doing a lot of interviews uh, with people who worked within the USDA and within its civil rights office. Um, and so they, they had been doing this work for for some time. Um, and, and I linked up with them um, a little bit later, uh, I, I believe because they had seen um, some of the earlier work that I had done, uh, looking not at, um, not at issues of discrimination involving black farmers, uh, but rather discrimination um, largely against women uh, within the Forest Service. So, you know, a very different sliver of the USDA, um, the Lawrence, obviously one that you and your organization work on as well. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, they had been doing this incredible work, um, publishing amazing articles on this in a lot of places, um, and we sort of decided to, to combine forces to look at what was going on, um, you know, more at the central office level. Um, you know, we had, I think, in various ways had looked at how this was, how civil rights uh, violations and discrimination were impacting different people in in, in different sectors, um, and you know I think this was coming together to to understand what was going on in the central office that these things were going on for so long without being addressed without being fixed. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to get back to you. Um, instead of maybe staying just on uh, one of the stories that we're talking about, um, I'm going to do something a little different, and which is kind of out of order. I'm going to now have uh, Ms. Emma Scott. Um, and this, the second time around, there was a Harvard study done and I hopefully she can remember or maybe have some information on that. There was a study done on USDA civil rights a number of years ago. Uh, I think it was during the Obama administration. But Mrs. Emma Scott is a clinical instructor at Harvard University uh, School of Law, Food, uh, Law, and Policy Clinic. Her work focuses on sustainable and equitable food production initiatives and clinical and clinics, uh, ongoing uh, collaborations in Mississippi Delta region, and a member of the Delta Directors uh, Consortium. But uh, that being said, uh, I'm going to have her to tell you about this very uh, interesting report or brief that uh, just recently became a part of record. And it's supporting its title, Supporting Civil Rights at USDA, Opportunities to Perform the, the USDA Office of the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights. It's focusing primarily on the office itself. Um, I want to welcome, uh, this is the first time she's been on the show, so I, I want to welcome uh, Emma, Ms. Emma Scott. Can you tell us um, about a little about yourself, about Kind of give us a brief, and uh, before we get into uh, open conversations about these two uh, very important uh, uh, stories that have just pr pr uh, been been uh, that's now circulating around Washington and the civil rights community. So, Ms. Scott, thank you for coming on, and uh, feel free to kind of introduce yourself. Uh, this is the first time you've been on, so feel free to introduce yourself and tell us about you, but most important, tell us about about this very impactful study that uh, uh, was just released only a week or so ago. All right, thank you. Thank you, Lawrence, and thank you so much for having having me on today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, as I think you did a great job introducing me, actually, um, I'm a clinical instructor with the Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. And 
being um, an instructor in the clinic means that we work with students on real-world issues and train them to become good and insightful attorneys, um, particularly in the area of food and agriculture. And so I, I joined the clinic in 2019, and, you know, since I've joined, um, I would say discrimination against black farmers by USDA has been an area of focus that we've had in the clinic, but also um, in the classroom. So in addition to um, teaching students in the clinic, we have classroom seminars that we teach, and we make sure that a big focus of the lessons that we have on agriculture are about discrimination against black farmers and other minority farmers by USDA. Um, and our students are really, um, they get really passionate about it. It's, you know, they've all learned about the civil rights movement and discrimination in other parts of government. But before taking our class, I think very few know about the prevalence of discrimination and the impact that it's had in agriculture. Um, and they're really surprised when they learn that the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history was over discrimination against black farmers. And afterward, they say, I can't believe I never learned that before. Um, and so what we try to do is find projects for students to work on where they can really learn about these issues deeply and get really invested in, in the research and um, sort of publishing and writing good, good products. And so let's see, in fall of last year, we were actually doing some research on, um, on Oscar, the Civil Rights Office, when we were approached by another organization that wanted us to write a memo focused on things that if the election swung toward Biden, that once an invited administration was in office, um, they could hit the ground running and start, you know, trying to implement change at USDA. So we went ahead and we, we wrote an earlier version of this report as a memo for them. And then once the transition happened, we decided, well, let's update this memo. Let's turn it into an issue brief and let's publish it so that advocates who are working at civil rights at USDA can have it in hand and use it to support the advocacy work that they're doing, um, that they're doing for change. And so that's really how, how this kind of kicked off and how I got involved um, in pushing this, uh, this brief forward. Lawrence, did we lose you? Uh, I'm sorry. I wanted to make sure I was muted. Uh, to keep the static down, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I want to know if uh, what is the connection between uh, the story, uh, just briefly, uh, tell us the connection between the brief and the story that's, that came out in Mother Jones. Uh, sure. That, that, and can you, can you give us a quick uh, connection there? I, yeah, yeah, I can. So um, one of the co-authors for the article who's on tonight um, is Nate Rosenberg, and he's a, he's a fellow with um, the Food Law and Policy Clinic as well. So I've had the opportunity to work with Nate over the last um, two years that I've been with the clinic. And um, 
So he's been really instrumental in helping us, you know, go kind of beyond the legal research that we do. So um, if you if you read the issue brief, we really tried to kind of pull together this long history of really well-documented issues with the Civil Rights Office at USDA. And so we look at government reports, um, congressional hearings, um, you know, Office of the Inspector General findings. So all of these really official government reports, we cover all of those in the brief. But um, in particular, to think about or to examine what's been going on over the last several years when we don't have as much um, of a, I guess, written record of what's been going on, we really needed to rely on some of the investigative reporting that you see in the Mother Jones article and in an article that um, Nate and Bryce had previously published um, in uh, 2019. And so I think, you know, by kind of linking for the students and in this piece, like linking that long history of really robust government findings about the discrimination and sort of the problems within the civil rights office to this investigative reporting that talks to individuals who actually work in the office or have worked in the office before or have had negative experiences with the office that really just fleshed it out and gave a lot of context. And so I think the two pieces really complement each other because the brief that we published is kind of focused on the sort of legal and policy and those kinds of things that are baked into statutes and reports. And then the, the piece that, um, that my colleagues here will talk about is much more in-depth getting into the personal stories and what was really going on behind the scenes as all of, those, um, as all of that was taking place. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think uh, now, um, Marty, do we have, has uh, Bryce Stuckey been able to uh, get into the call-in line as yet? Not Marty? yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, Lawrence, but we have, Lawrence, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Uh, Bryce, Hello? thank you. Hey, I'm um, here. Okay, good, good. Okay, well, that's great. How did you do that, Bryce? I mean, I don't have you on the call board, so yay! Oh, oh, I joined on. <laughs> I joined on Nate's call, so I got in. Secretly. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Okay, well that's that's good. So you all are on the same line. Well, uh, I want to yeah. um, thank you for being on and and being persistent. Um, we now have. I want to introduce um, uh, Nate uh, Rosenberg, and. I can't um, say enough about what um, Nate and uh, Bryce has done over the years and staying with a story that nobody would want to hear. And when they hear it, and I'm getting these vibrations from the bureaucracy in Washington, um, they don't want to hear from the same people. But you have to understand uh, the importance of having um, uh, Emma Scott, uh, Catherine Joyce, uh, Bryce Stuckey, and Nate Rosenberg, because there are people, we need people in this world to make this 
this country and our work environment and our nation better. And we do that because people are willing to spend their time and do something that will make a difference in people's lives. I must say that the Harvard study, the work that Harvard has done in the past, what uh, Catherine Joyce has done, and what Nate and Bryce Stuckey has done is admirable work and gives credit and a voice to people that have been silenced too long. And they cover not only employment, but they all, the employment issue at USDA, which is systemic uh, dysfunctionality of a civil rights process and administration. And they have taken on this task of informing the American public, the Congress, um, the, the Congress, the, the White House, and the general public about the abuse that's been going on. So um, I get a little emotional about this because I know that the time and effort that has been put into the research that they have, all these individuals have done who are on tonight, people are going to benefit from that. And I want to thank you again, thank you all for being here tonight. But, Nate, I want you to start off and kind of tell us just um, this article in Mother Jones, The Machine That Eats Up Black Farmland. And it, it, it came out in the May-June issue uh, 2021 of the Mother, Mother Jones and I want you to tell us, uh, why are you continually focusing on this issue? And between you and Bryce, and I don't have to introduce him again because um, you all feel like family here, um, tell us why you all continue to uh, uh, delve in and deep dive into the racism and sexism at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I thank you both for being on uh, tonight. Hi, yeah, and, and thanks so much for having us. I'm, I'm um, really excited to be a part of this conversation. You, you know, I think, so Bryce and I, as, as Emma mentioned, um, wrote an article uh, that, that came out a couple of years ago now um, about discrimination against black farmers and, and how USDA had... Um, manipulated data and used other means to cover up that that discrimination. And as we were researching that article and, and looking into the issue, you know, we, we quickly found out that it was a much bigger problem. That that often, you know, the, the civil rights office, uh, a, a lot of the problems originated with how USCA treated black farmers. Black farmers were often um, the target, uh, consciously the, the, the target of um, USDA and um, the civil rights, as Bryce can talk about if, if there's time, um, the, the history of the civil rights office in, in many ways was defined by um, discrimination against black farmers. But, you know, we read um, reporting, Catherine's reporting on what was going on in the Forest Service, and um, we, as we started talking to employees and, and whistleblowers that 
worked on civil rights issues in USDA, um, they started telling us, uh, you know, that this is a much bigger problem. And so we, we, we hinted at that in our story on black farmers, but, but we didn't have the, the space in the room to tell the, the whole story about the civil rights our, uh, office. So that's really how this story came, came about. We wanted to tell the story of um, the civil rights office and its problems. Okay. Um, th- th- thank you very much. Uh, Bryce, uh, you're, you're there. Uh, kind of give, give us a feel for um, – I know you, uh, you do deep dive – you deep dive into research, and, and that is a, is a, is a, is a expert uh, field that many of us stay away from the numbers. But you are very good at that, and the two of you all have been able to come up with the necessary research and findings and data that supports many of the stories that you all have written. Um, what is your view uh, when you think about what you all have written, and how does that tie – how do you see that tying into uh, the Harvard brief? Um. Uh, I guess my view is similar to Nate's in that, um, you know, we had heard, um, you know, we had heard that things were not as they appeared at USDA. And as Nate interviewed employees, we kept finding out things were worse than we had initially thought. Um, So I think our, work over the past um, several years has been, I think we've wanted to kind of make sense of why discrimination is so bad at USDA and explain it to, try to explain it to the public and also to policymakers. And I think the other thing that's important um, to both of us and Catherine um, is letting People who don't usually get interviewed, you know, speak and trying to convey their story in our articles. So I, I guess the Civil Rights Office article we wanted to show, we wanted um, we, we like Nate said, we had presented statistics on the Civil Rights Office, but I, I don't think we felt like um, – Politicians or policymakers we spoke with really understood how how uh, central uh, the civil rights office was to problems at USDA. So we we wanted to work with Catherine to try to demonstrate that in this article. So hopefully hopefully the article um, shows. You know, I think it. I think it. I think it does a good job showing how um, a farmer facing discrimination, you know, how their problems are directly related to the dysfunction in Washington. Um, And that's thanks to Catherine's reporting. And then I also hope it includes history um, that can help people make sense of how things got so bad in the office. And I think the the policy brief, which I've read, does a really great job 
um, of summarizing, um, you know, the existing reports and research on the Civil Rights Office and making helpful recommendations that I hope um, the Biden administration takes up. Thank you very much. Um, Marty, um, uh, I'd like to break in and maybe, is it possible, Marty, that we could get maybe some, I have some questions in front of me, but um, I want to uh, see if there's any questions, especially any questions out there for uh, Mrs. Scott to address uh, from our listening audience. Do we have anyone, anyone on with questions? Not, not yet, but the board is absolutely packed. Uh, if anyone does want to speak with Lawrence or any of the guests, please dial 917-388-4520. When you do that, hit the number one immediately to flag me so I can get you on air. That number is 917-388-4520. Hit the number one. Okay, thank you very much. Um, there's one question, um, Ms. Scott. Um, the issue of how the U.S. Department of Agriculture administers it's uh, civil rights administration and processes. Uh, what what area uh, of that whole process bothers you the most, and and where does the the office of general counsel uh, fit in this mix uh, in terms of the dysfunctionality of civil rights at USDA? Because they claim that uh, I think they really feel as though they're doing a fine job. Can you help me help out kind of clarify that or what you see from your, your findings and research? Sure. So I think, I think this came up, um, you know, it was a big focus in the, in the issue brief, but it also I think was highlighted in the article, the Mother Jones article as well. And just that there's this, um, you know, there's been a, a long, it seems to be several years um, extending back into the Obama administration of the Office of General Counsel really playing an outsized role in the processing um, and determinations made um, on complaints. and. Really, the Office of General Counsel, that's the attorney for USDA, and so that's, that's the attorney that's going to be defending USDA against complaints. So it's really, it's really a conflict of interest to have them involved in any way, shape, or form in, the, you know, in investigating complaints, um, letting them have any access whatsoever to those records. Um, to have them involved in writing or offering their opinion on an agency decision that's being made by the civil rights, um, the folks in the civil rights office. And so that was, that's why when you get to the recommendation section of our report, the very first recommendation is that there needs to be, um, you know, there's supposed to be a firewall between the two departments that completely cuts them off from one another, um, you know, based on the reporting that we've seen that hasn't always been enforced. And 
just going in and looking at the policies and procedures at USDA, that needs to be like first and foremost what the, you know, what's um, tackled and that it's needed both to make sure the integrity of the process is in place, but also unless that's done and done um, transparently, um, I think you're not, you're not going to see people have faith that the um, civil rights complaint determination process is a fair process. And so that will discourage people from filing complaints that have, that have merit and, um, and, you know, should be filed um, in that case. So I think that was, that was um, a big piece for me, which you pulled out. I think, I think another piece that came out a lot for me, both, um, in in the article and then in the process of doing the research for this um this report is just the you know the lack of transparency and kind of public accountability for the um for both the scandalous things so the really public instances of leaders within the civil rights office having complaints lodged against them um but also just, you know, it, it feels like every few years there's a reckoning when people see that there's a problem with this office that needs to have attention to it. And then we really don't get a transparent follow-up process that lets you know that there is accountability and there have been changes and really letting you know what they are and that they're being enforced. Um, and I think some of that may be because of changes in administration, but I also just think that there, you know, needs to be instilled more of a culture of accountability and transparency so that those same questions aren't coming up over and over again like they have been. Okay, thank you very much. You really answered uh, my question. My, uh, my next question I want to address to uh, with uh, Catherine Joyce. You've written many stories about the the employees at USDA and this issue that uh, many people want to uh, uh, put it to the side when we talk about USDA, but I believe that unless you resolve the systemic problem at USDA, then settling a farmer's case, settling uh, one class action, or settling uh, one individual's case does not answer uh, or address solving the problem. What do you, when you dealing as you see it dealing with employees, and you're seeing all this around the farmers? What is the connection between, as you see it, in terms of the the institutionality of the racism and abuse and the sexism at USDA. What do you see, what is the connection that you see between the two? And I'm talking about the difference between Title VI and Title VII, uh, pro, uh, um, farmers, program, and employment. Uh, um, Ms. Joyce, can you uh, help us with that? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, I, I mean, the first thing that I was looking at um, when I started taking, when I became aware of this issue at all back in 2015, um, was was looking at the experience of employees. Um, so uh, 
speaking a lot to women in in the forest service who were dealing um, on one hand with you know really epidemic sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace um, particularly I ended up speaking to uh, a lot of uh, women who worked as firefighters uh, within the forest service, many of them in California, but also in, in other places and also in other uh, jobs and, and fields within the forest service. Um, so a lot of dealing um, with sexual harassment and, you know, trying to get people to pay attention to that uh, a few years before me too um, made that, uh, you know, a really uh, global movement but also other forms of of discrimination. Um, you know, women who were, were just having their, their careers completely sidelined um, because they were women uh, or because uh, especially a lot of the time, this was kind of a universal thing, um, when they had filed a complaint. Um, I was told again and again, um, you know, by, by women who were, were trying to work in this very much of a man's world of, of fire, uh, you know, no matter what happens, you do not file, you do not file. If you do, that's it for you, basically. But, you know, when women um, had been dealing with enough discrimination uh, and enough, you know, abuse, whether that was sexualized in nature or just, you know, preventing them from being able to do their jobs, um, if they if they got to the point where they were fed up enough that they did file uh, a complaint, um, a civil rights complaint. Um, for one thing, uh, they dealt with incredible retaliation. Um, it, it just turned into, they, they became the villains um, on their forests, you know, among their teams. Uh, some of them ended up having their subordinates uh, completely basically mutiny against them. Um, so that's one thing is, is the retaliation that they were facing and, you know, that that is a, an additional and prohibited form of discrimination all on its own, aside from the original things that they were dealing with. But also that they, um, when, I, when I looked at this issue again for Outside Magazine in 2018, um, you know, this was learning um, that the process itself was often completely opaque. Uh, and extremely, you know, hard to navigate, even for people who had been, you know, in administrative positions, really understood the bureaucracy, and they're finding it impossible to figure out how can they successfully file a civil rights complaint to, to get their issues addressed, to, to make it so that they can work their jobs and, and succeed in their careers. Um, and that, you know, a lot of that ended up leading to what happens in the civil rights office. Uh, you know, that programs or employee complaints were, were being treated, I mean, in, in a different way, but very similar to what's happening in the, on the program side, um, you know, with, with people who are, you know, clients of, of USDA, um, you know, black farmers, what they were dealing with. But just this, this intense, system that is trying to find ways to dismiss all of these complaints, to say that this was not discrimination, this did not happen. Um, and I think that that is really the core similarity, as I see it, though um, I'd be really interested in Nate and Bryce's and Professor Scott's um, 
thoughts on this as well, but it just seems like this this parallel issue in in these very different fields that every everything that they document and submit as a complaint gets chipped away at. Um, you know, one of the the people who I think Nate spoke to. Um, had this amazing phrase that the USDA was functioning as a closing machine, that they were just finding all of these ways to close complaints, to get rid of complaints, um, not to take them seriously. So I would say that that is the big similarity, the most important one that I see. Oh, Can I, can I say something here, Lawrence? Uh, years ago, this is Marty, the producer, Years ago, we were fighting USDA over premises ID and animal identification, and I heard about the uh, neglect of complaints that came in from various areas. And we had put up a article about the new head of USDA, something, I don't know what she was doing. But anyway, um, we found out that she had an interest in um, all of this. It was a conflict. We put up an article about that conflict. I had a gentleman by the name of George Strait, he claimed, um, call me from USDA and insisted that I take the article down. And I said no. And so things went on. Eventually, I called back there to get a clarification on an email I had been sent. The girl I'm talking to after Fiverr being passed around to five or six people, I said to her, is it true that when complaints come in, especially if they're from black farmers or minority farmers, is it, is it true that they just go in the basket and then you store them in the basement? And she said, well, what do you want us to do with them? I said, answer the complaint. And she hung up. But I had that conversation myself, and that was her response. What do you want us to do with them? I thought that was a little interesting. Uh, thank you, Marty. That's very uh, that that is what they actually did at USDA uh, at one point in time. They they took all the cases that came in. I'm not sure they're not doing the same thing now. It's putting these things uh, in uh, shopping carts uh, on windowsills and on the floors uh, in the civil rights office because we have thousands of cases from farmers, and I'm getting calls constantly now from employees at USDA after reading the many articles that you all have been putting out there, they're getting the, uh, the confidence uh, to speak up. Uh, on that issue, uh, Nate and Bryce, um, the question always comes up that, and I hear it often, that um, the information and this discussion about USDA civil rights is an old one. And I think they're also implying that the credibility, and they're getting to the credibility of the data and the information and the interviews that you've had from USDA employees who have found a voice through you, found a voice uh, through the research and the exposure. Um, what do you say to those people that question the information, the data, and the people that you talk to? What is your answer to that? What is the answer to those questions, please? 
Nate? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think um, Bryce can speak more to the history. Um, but I'll, I'll just start off by saying that the, I mean, the documentation is overwhelming. And um, there's been um, a number of, of major reports uh, conducted by government agencies that have, oh, sorry, I just got a notification from a text from Bryce that his phone hung up, so he's going to call me and I'll conference him in. Um, but there's been every decade uh, beginning in, in the uh, beginning in 1965, there's been um, at least one and often several um, major government reports that have documented widespread discrimination against black farmers. Um, and there's also been a, a number of um, congressional hearings. Um, so, so I, I just got another text from Bryce Lawrence, and he said that he called the 917 number, um, but is still on hold. Okay, hold on here. I'm going to have to bump somebody. I found him. Here he is. There you go, Bryce. Hello? Bryce? Yes. Yes, hello. There you go. Hi. All right. He's, you got him, Lawrence. Hi, Lawrence. I'm glad we Did had we... you connected, uh, Bryce. So, uh, Nate, will you continue, please? Sure. Yeah, Bryce. I, I was, uh, Lawrence asked, I, I don't know if you heard this, but Lawrence asked, you know, what do you say to people who um, don't believe or are skeptical of the claims of, of discrimination, and particularly at, at the scale um, that, that we and others um, have, have written about? And I, I was talking a, a little bit about um, the, you know, the, the extensive reports and congressional hearings that have documented this discrimination, and I thought... Um, you know, it, it, you could talk a little bit about your work looking at the census of agriculture and other kind of data-driven analyses of, of black farmland. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I, I mean, if someone wanted to question a specific claim, you know, I guess I, we'd have to respond to it on a case-by-case basis, but in general, you know, the discrimination, you know, the historical discrimination is so well documented um, in the academic literature and in government reports. Um, And then today, um, you know, through the interviews that, you know, speaking about black farmers in particular, um, through the interviews that Nate and I have done, and through talking with the employees in the civil rights office, I mean, I, I don't think anybody could go through the interviews that we've done and not be uh, convinced by just the enormous amount of evidence that discrimination is uh, extremely pervasive in USDA. So I, I don't think anyone can, I, I mean, I know people will argue with the general claims, but I don't think, 
if you're familiar with the evidence, you can possibly think that um, we're wrong about them. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the level of documentation of the discrimination is astounding. And like we mentioned in the article, I think we had interviews with 19 employees. So it's not like we're just getting uh, an employee here or there. You know, it, it's like Catherine was saying about harassment in the Forest Service. It's it's so common. Um, you know, and everybody, you know, tells you about it too. It's not, and also, you know, in the Civil Rights Office, it's not like, you know, some people think there's a problem, others don't. It's like almost everyone you talk to thinks there's a problem. I mean, even even people who you might not expect, like the former uh, director of the Civil Rights Office, Joe Leonard, um, who was criticized by almost everybody we interviewed, you know, he said that there were problems. I mean, he, he blamed the Office of General Counsel, but, you know, it's not, it's not really, there's not really much disagreement when you go over the evidence um, and talk to people in these situations. I, I think that people who might disagree with the general message just aren't informed. Um, I, I really think that's the only way you could disagree with our general narrative. Okay, thank you very much. Marty, um, do we have any, uh, any uh, individuals on the call-in line who would, would like to ask questions? No, uh, I say Lawrence. The studio board is packed so bad, I don't know if they could get in. Okay. So, okay. Okay, we well, let's, let's, uh, let's move on. Um, um, Ms. Scott, uh, um, for, I'm going to present the same kind of question to you because we have people in Washington uh, that spends, uh, and they spend, by the way, and they're very good at it, uh, that will say that, um, this story of, about uh, the machine that eats up black farmland is nonsense. They will also say that it's also nonsense, and Harvard University really does not know about how USDA functions. So, therefore, um, they trivialize and marginalize these kind of reports and this kind of data when you have 19 people talking, and I want to go back to those names. But how would how do you see, um, uh, Ms. Scott, when I know the kind of feedback that I'm getting, and I'm asking you the same question, what kind of uh, deep dive into um, the, the depth of the research that you did that would convince someone that what Harvard has done, and it's exceptional, by the way, and the credibility of it, and the nonsense of these uh, uh, idiotic claims that spend a lot of time that will marginalize uh, the data of this fine report that Harvard has done, a brief. Ms. Yeah, Scott. thank you. Um, so I think one part of the critique that you mentioned is 
fair, and that is that, you know, I've, I've never worked at USDA, so there's going to, of course, be complexities and pressures and dynamics that, um, that we just can't capture from doing research like this um, without having worked there and kind of been a part of the, of the office itself. That that being said, I think that the types of um, sources that we relied upon are incredible, incredibly credible. So I'd point to um, there was a letter from the Office of Special Counsel right at the end of the Obama administration that commented on the mismanagement of the of the office, um, and that's you know another government agency that is charged with investigating um, what the federal government is doing. And that, that was the conclusion that it reached. And it sent that letter to Congress saying that. And um, that was right at the end of the Obama administration. And I have not seen any evidence of um, things dramatically changing under the Trump administration. And when you look at just the civil rights reports themselves that document you know, the average length of time that a complaint is sitting without being resolved um, and the number of complaints coming in, the evidence points to it being worse under the Trump administration and complaints sitting for even longer and um, less uh, uh, actions against employees for, um, for uh, you know, complaints of discrimination against them. And so I think... I think if you look into the sources and look at the reports and um, the investigation that's underlying each of those, you'll see that the conclusions that we've put into this brief are are well-founded and the um, recommendations that we made, you know, we didn't just pull them out of a hat. Some of them came from the Government Accountability Office itself and um, are just updated to reflect, you know, the realities of today. And others, you know, in our process, we spoke with people who have worked at USDA or who are attorneys. One of our co-authors is an attorney who files complaints and represents um, farmers in, in these kinds of matters. And so we certainly did our homework to make sure that the things that we were recommending could actually do some work to um, – to make the kind of change that we would hope to see. That being said, these are all recommendations for the administration. And so I would say they don't go as far as they could because I think for really systemic change, we'll probably need Congress to step in. Um, and we don't go so far as to talk about what Congress could do in this report. Yeah, thank you. Uh, a question I have is, has USDA or anyone from the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, contacted you um, since the release of this uh, uh, brief? Uh, no. Okay. Um, uh, did you seek out um, USDA's participation or uh, advice in any way or to help you to put this report together, or did you all have to do it uh, strictly independent without any 
uh, assistance from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We did do it independently. Yes, officially, we did do it independently, um, in part because most of it was written at a time when we were making recommendations for um, sort of the next leadership coming in to to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So we didn't work with them in putting this brief together, no. Okay, thank you. at this time, I've been able to, thanks to technology, um, I'm going to, I do have someone who's going to ask a question. I, I decided to call them because they sent in some questions to me for for you all, and I'm going to try to connect them without cutting off our system. So um, uh, we have uh, Mr. Um, uh, uh, we have a, uh, a, um, a person on the line who is uh, a Wayne, um, uh, and, and he has been doing a great deal of research in this area. And uh, I'm hopefully that he will be able to introduce himself as well as ask a question. Um, are you there, Wayman? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me on the phone? Yes, I can. I, I can hear you. Can uh, Marty? Can you hear Wayman? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Wayman. You have one or two questions, uh, and this is a good time to ask a few of them. Okay. Okay. So, so uh, b- before asking a question, I want to say that I feel like I'm in. Uh, I've been listening in to people uh, that I think are the heroes of. Uh, of what's going on with the Black Pharma movement, uh, for you researchers and you academicians to be doing deep dives into the politics of USDA, OCR, OGC, I think that's really pretty incredible. So a, a thing that I bring to the table is the whole notion of stories, narratives, farmers, and families who have been caught up in this incredible intentional bureaucratic racism. And so I guess what I would ask to the whole panel would be, in your listening to the stories of the farmers themselves, what are some of the dominant themes that you have heard in terms of how land loss has impacted them as individuals and collectively as uh, as families? Thank you. Hello. Um, yeah. Uh, who would like Who would like to answer that question? I think he's put that out to the four of you. So uh, uh, any one of you all can just speak up. Emma. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's impacted families in in so many different ways. I mean, when we Bryce and I were were conducting interviews for the article that was eventually published in, in the counter. Um, we visited several different states and, and interviewed dozens of black farmers and, you know, the, 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 you know, farming was more than a vocation for, for almost everyone we talked to. It was, they had a deep connection. The people we talked to had a deep connection to the land um, that their family had and, and owned. Um, and, you know, there are, there are cases when people um, still felt you know, 
deeply upset, understandably, and, and hurt about losing land, you know, 30, 40 years prior. Um, and, you know, one gentleman I met actually left Mississippi when, when he was 16 because his life was, was at risk because of his uh, civil rights advocacy. And he, he got a, a job in Wisconsin, a job that it wasn't a very high-paying job, but he had a pension. And when he retired in his 60s, he moved back to Mississippi and was able to purchase a, a small plot of land. And um, when I was talking with him, with, with um, a, a colleague who asked, you know, why did he decide to move back to Mississippi and start a, a, a farm? And he said, you know, I, I wanted to show them. And then he pointed to the, the large planters, uh, the white planters who lived um, and farmed across the street. I wanted to show them that, you know, um, I could I could have a farm here. And so, and it was, you know, he came back to the to the uh, town that he grew up in. And so I think, you know, in addition to, and this is something that that Bryce can speak about more too. You know, the the loss of black land has meant a huge loss in black wealth because it was a primary source. Um, of of wealth for black families in the South, um, pretty much up until the the civil rights era. Um, in, in addition, you know, I think the the looking at the the wealth data and the dollars and cents is incredibly important. But in addition to that, the loss of black ma- land also meant tearing up communities. Um, and disconnecting people from their their family, friends, and the land um, that they had a deep connection to. Uh, Bryce, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I, I think the um, something that stood out to me, um, either you know, listening to black farmers or listening to interviews Nate had done was the determination that so many of them had um, to hold on, to hold on to the land um, and to like, we, we interviewed this guy um, lot Johnson in Memphis. And I think he was on his third or fourth lawsuit against USDA. And um he didn't even bother getting financing from them at that point. He had a friend uh, at a bank who he said he got loans from. And I guess I just find their determination to take on um, these farmers' determination to take on the department, um, uh, you know, that has so much power and has proven so indifferent. Um, to their struggles, uh, I find it inspiring, you know, so, so I think that's what's stood out to me the most in our interviews. Okay. Uh, uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, Catherine. Lawrence. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ms. Joyce, are Lawrence? you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Uh, Ms. Joyce, um, uh, do you have anything to add uh, to what um, uh, addressing that question that uh, Mr. Henson brought up? 
We aren't getting Catherine. anything there. Um, okay, uh, well, her um, call dropped. Lawrence, okay. Lawrence, okay. her call dropped. Uh, okay, this, I got Lawrence. that. Lawrence, you have Stephen yes. Hill on. It's live. Okay, well, um, let's get Mr. Hill ask a question. Uh, thank you, Mr. Hill, for being on uh, tonight. Uh, you've had a a long experience uh, with USDA. Uh, you've heard uh, the conversation tonight. Tell me what you think about, uh, what you know about USDA, what you think about the, these, the two reports and the two articles, and and maybe you may have a question as well. You you now uh, are center stage, and thank you for coming on tonight. Oh, no problem. Uh, I just thought and think that in, in, in some sense we are almost understating uh, the problem of discrimination at USDA uh, with respect to the uh, the discrimination in the programs, it's not, you know, as you know, it's not just black farmers, although black farmers have historically borne the brunt of it. Uh, there were uh, cases brought and discrimination proved with respect to female farmers, Hispanic farmers, and Native American farmers. And given the localized uh, nature in which the loan process takes place, it's not necessarily surprising that it wouldn't lend itself to localized prejudice and discrimination. So, for example, where black farmers are the predominant minority farmers, they're going to be the victims of the discrimination and racism. Uh, similarly, if you move out to the southwest, where there are more Hispanic and Native American farmers, you'll see similar examples of discrimination and land loss, and women suffer throughout the, throughout the United States. So, you know, so I think uh, if, if you're trying to convince people that there is a problem, uh, if you look at it holistically, there really is indeed a problem, but it's, it certainly isn't limited, unfortunately, to, uh, to black farmers as, as uh, as we know, black farmers have suffered greatly under uh, the administration, but it's not limited that way. The other thing I think you, I would point out is part of the problem is the uh, discretion that's in the regulations that uh, control the lending process. It is very easy when you have that much discretion and regulations that are so uh, loosely framed uh, to permit discrimination. I mean, there are hundreds of ways in which you can get a farm not to cash flow and therefore deny a loan. Uh, and you can do it in all, in all sorts of manipulative ways uh, and you can slow the process down in various and sundry ways. We saw all of this, and I worked on these cases for over a decade. So, uh, the, you know, I think we need to be focused. And I think the final thing I would point out is 
the whole uh, bringing the administrative civil rights complaints, you know, can be something of a trap. One of the things that we discovered in, uh, in my years of working on this was that the civil rights office was quite often a dumping ground for disgruntled uh, employees. Who it, and, and so you, you obviously didn't necessarily have the best situation there. Uh, and when you filed a, a complaint, an administrative complaint, a civil rights complaint with the agency, uh, they could drag it out indefinitely and at the end of the day deny it, and you, in the process, lost your opportunity to file uh, a core action, Equal Credit Opportunity Act action, in federal court because you didn't need to file an administrative claim complaint as a predicate to filing a case in federal court. Uh, and if you file a complaint with the administrative agency and they let it languish, the statute of limitations could run on your federal claim. So this is, you know, this is all part and parcel of, of the problem, but uh, I, I think it's a much bigger problem than, unfortunately, just black farmers. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Hill, for coming on, and and uh, please stay connected because you may get a chance to ask another question. Thank you. I want to uh, now. I would like to hear, um, based on what uh, Attorney Hill has said, and the question that's on the table or the issue on the table, uh, Ms. Scott, um, can you add to um, this conversation? that uh, about the functionality of USDA and some of the things that um, uh, Nate has said and and your findings in terms as it relates to some of the things that uh, Attorney Hill has said, uh, Ms. Scott. Sure. Um, I Yeah, I really appreciate the point that uh, Mr. Hill just made because you know, we, um, in part because of being a little bit more familiar with the history, we did focus a lot in the background section of this report on sort of the history of discrimination against black farmers in particular. Um, but, you know, discrimination, USDA is a huge agency, and it has so many different programs and kind of different buckets that it covers. And so the part of the reason why we focus on the civil rights process um, at the central office is because it impacts um, folks participating in a number of different USDA programs. So you have the farm lending, which impacts, you know, not just black farmers, but, um, but women farmers, um, you know, Latino farmers, um, uh, indigenous farmers, Native American farmers and ranchers. Um, but then we also have, you know, folks who participate in SNAP and the food assistance programs, um, uh, you, folks who live in housing that is um, funded through USDA's rural development program. And so I think really part of the reason to focus on civil rights 
as it pertains to this office is because it touches on the lives of so many millions of people who are who interface with the agency in some way. And so I think um, I think that would be my response to to what Mr. Hill kind of brought up. And I think that 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 is really um, a critical point. Um, and then I guess just going back a little bit to the question that you asked earlier, kind of questioning why why this report matters. Um, I think I think one thing that even though um, you know Harvard Law School and my clinic aren't in USDA and aren't seeing what the day-to-day work looks like, I think sometimes it can be helpful to have like a fresh set of eyes on a problem and have folks who maybe aren't in the day-to-day able to take a step back and look at some of the policy proposals that are out there and think about which ones seem like they could have legs and could actually make the process a little bit more um, uh, responsive to the needs of all the different constituents. Um, Because as Mr. Hill pointed out as well, for, you know, for many people, this is their this is their bite at the apple, and not everyone can afford or has the resources or the access to going and filing a lawsuit in court. And so, if they're going to get relief from discrimination that they've experienced, this is the only process that's really available to them. And so, it's really critical that we make sure that that process is effective and is able to actually. Um, you know, give them redress for the for the discrimination that they've experienced um, in USDA programs. And so, yeah, I think that's what I would say to that. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Nate, Bryce, um, what um, – do you have a response uh, in terms of uh, some of the uh, things that uh, Attorney Hill uh, stated Bryce? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is absolutely, I, I think, um, and this is something we've talked on in previous conversations with you on, on the show, but I, I think a lot of the, the problems with the Civil Rights Office are the result of discrimination against uh, black farmers and families, but it affects a much wider range of people than that. Uh, you know, it uh, there, there's absolutely a long um, history and a, 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 um, ongoing discrimination against Native American and, and Hispanic farmers. And it also affects a large number of SNAP recipients, um, uh, tenants in housing uh, that's funded by USTA, and and a large number of other employees and, and people who receive services from, from USDA. And um, I think that's a, a really important thing to keep in mind. Can, Thank you. Lawrence, can I Bryce? ask yes. a question here? Um, yeah. well, I just wanted to ask, this, does it bother any of you that we have gone through successive Congresses and presidents and yet nothing no matter the promises, ever changes in this. Lawrence, we've done, what, at least 200 shows on the USDA and brought out all kinds of things that are basically public knowledge, and yet nothing 
there's no response from the political side of this from either party that's of any merit whatsoever. Does it any of that bother any of you? Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> can yeah. can you hear me? Yeah. Go can ahead. you all hear me? Yeah, it's it's yes. uh it's very uh upsetting and uh discouraging, even though I haven't been doing it. Well, you know, I've been working on it for four or five years now, but yeah, it's inc- it's incredibly discouraging to read these reports from the nineties that are talking about the same problems and, and back uh further than that. Um I I think I think some people in the current Congress have shown some interest in the fact that the debt relief was passed um for black farmers and the, the bailout bill. Um I think that you know is some cause for optimism, but yeah, it's very discouraging. Okay, thank you. Um since we have um, – there's one thing I, w- I want to address, and there was an interview uh, that was very extensive with one employee at the U.S. Department of Agriculture that you all covered. Um, is Was there anything um, – any one thing or a series of things that, that – the employees offered or, and I'll have to be very, I'll call her name, uh, Queen Kavanaugh. Um, what, how did you feel about the information and the credibility of the information that she gave? And, and can you, the both of you all address that in any way? Sure. Um, yeah. I, I'm, Go ahead, Bryce. Um, well, I I was going to say that was, um, you know, Catherine did uh, the interviews with Queen, but um, I think that from reading, you know, the interviews that Catherine did with her, I mean, first, you know, I think she's very credible. Um, everything she's saying has uh, been echoed by other people we've interviewed. Um Second, I think it was brave of her to go on the record, um, and also that her, um, you know, what she did to try to help out the family who we talk about in the article was also very brave and put her career uh, at risk, and she was punished for it. Um, so I think that demonstrates uh, her integrity. So. Um, yeah, I, I find her very credible, and I'm, I'm I'm really glad that she talked to Catherine because I think it made the article um, much stronger. Nate, can you add anything to that? Yeah, um, I you know we for for this article we spoke to 19 different people um, that either are. Uh, currently working within the Civil Rights Office or had worked within USDA Civil Rights Office in the future. And I think what was so important, what, you know, most of them uh, couldn't go on the record because either they were still within USDA and um, would face retaliation if they went on the record speaking to us, um, or uh, they were 
currently um, in litigation with USDA um, or worked for other federal agencies and, and feared retaliation. And so I think it was, you know, very brave, as Bryce said, for, for Kareem to speak with us. And just talking to our other sources, um, it became really clear how um, brave that was. And also, you know, they, as Bryce mentioned, they supported her story. And everyone that we talked to that, that knew Queen said that she was a credible source and also in, incredibly committed to uh, civil rights. Um, and, and in addition to having her story backed up by other people that we talked to, our other sources, you know, there was also documentation that um, supported what she said. There was a very clear um, uh, trail of documents that showed exactly what happened, um, both to the family that, that we used to the, the the family of farmers that we covered in the story, and also what happened with uh, Queen Kavanaugh herself. Uh, thank you very much. Um, there's a, in my mind, what I'm hearing is that USDA is in a in a, a large part its civil rights office is dysfunctional is it going to take a body either from the inside and i don't think from the inside it's going to work from the outside i e the words that i've used many years ago and i still use it now i think that the office of civil rights based on the most recent studies and research and what I'm hearing from inside the Department of Agriculture from employees, from uh, Animal Plant and Inspection Service all over the country, from FSA employees uh, in more than lo one location, uh, from NRCS employees in more than one location. Is it going to take uh, an outside entity and, and the word I use is, and I'm opposing this uh, to uh, Ms. Scott as well, is it going to take an outside organization to fix this mess or fix this problem? And is, it, is receivership the only answer to changing USDA around? Or do you all think that based on the research and the people you've talked to and the research that you've seen, do you think USDA can fix itself without something like putting in a receivership and an independent body come in and take it, take it over and uh, remake it? Uh, can, uh, Emma, do you, do you want to you, uh, you wanna respond to that first? Sure, I can say something first. Um... I do I do think it's going to be challenging to see uh, the kind of shift that we would like to see without there being some sort of oversight. Um, something that sits outside the office, whether it's an independent ombudsperson or um, like the oversight board that's 
currently proposed in the Justice for Black Farmers Act. I think something that has a, a little bit at least of independence and some credibility um, and, sort, you know, a new, a new mandate outside of, of the office would be a really promising path forward for seeing, um, you know, real deep systemic change. Um, and I do, I, I do think that, you know, just based on the research that, that we have and all the reports that we have, like Bryce said, it's, it's discouraging to see that, you know, a lot of the issues that we continue to see today were being reported on and, you know, there were action plans and recommendations put in place back in the in the nineties about these issues. And so I do think that having having something new like that that kind of sits outside and has some independence would be would be a good step um toward making lasting change. Uh, and as a follow up as a follow up question, uh would or will Harvard University, do you think that uh, they would lend their resources to help USDA fix this problem or an independent body to come in? And if you were asked, would Harvard University uh, care to participate in, in such a, a, a bold move to, to change USDA once and for all? I think it depends on what the on what the specific role for us would be. We're you know we're a law school clinic, so first and foremost, we're looking for educational opportunities for our students. But that also means that we have students who are able to do good research and um, you know some person power underneath us. So if there's a way that we could play a role in supporting that endeavor, then I think we would be excited about that. Okay, thank you. Um, Nate, uh, Bryce, um, uh, I'm posing the same uh, question to you regarding receivership as well as uh, uh, what do you think, based on your, your research, uh, what do you think is the solution uh, to this problem at USDA? Um, I, I think something... Well, I don't think the office is going to reform itself. Uh, I think that would also be I, – I, I think anyone who's read these reports would find that that's obvious. Um, something we weren't able to emphasize in the version of the article that got published was that um, there, are, there are a lot of good employees um, in the Civil Rights Office like Queen Kavanaugh when she was there, and there, there are many others uh, who believe in civil rights, and they try to do a good job, but there's a leadership uh, who doesn't want that to happen, and they work with uh, the Office of General Counsel um, to, you know, make sure that there's almost no findings of discrimination, and those people have to be removed. They're not going to remove themselves. You can't just publish a new report and expect them to all retire because they feel bad about what they've done. You have to remove them. And there's there's more than enough grounds to remove them. And if the Biden administration wanted to make that happen, I'm sure they could find a way to do it tomorrow. Um, and there, there would really be nothing, you know, in my opinion, 
all that extraordinary about it, except that it never happened. Nothing like that has ever happened in USDA. And what I mean is their offensives have been so egregious that they should have been removed a long time ago. So to me, the first step would be, you know, removing people who've broken the law, um, broken, you know, federal regulations, and promoting people who are trying to follow them. And, and those people are already in the office. But as to the, the bigger question about remaking USDA, which, as we've talked about, is so corrupted um, and affects um, thousands of people across the country, I mean, it's a massive project, and you would have to have the executive behind it, and you would... You know, I, I think when you really realize I, the depth of the problem, you, you, you would kind of want to start from the ground up. So, yeah. Okay. 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 I hate to break much, in Martin. here, but we've got, we've got less than a minute left here. I want to thank all of our guests this evening. This has been an interesting conversation. For those listening, I want to remind you that all of this dysfunction, mismanagement, discrimination, you, the taxpayer, are paying for every bit of it while these people are home with a check. Stop and think about that. And yet, like I say, numerous congresses and presidents have refused, failed, neglected to right this wrong. And you are paying for every bit of it. Another reminder, these shows are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, an annual event in Washington, D.C., taking place July 29th through 31st this year. It will be by video again uh, because of this virus. But anyway, Lawrence, thank you so much. Uh, To all of our guests, thank you for coming on. Uh, This has been a difficult conversation, and it's quite complex, but I think you all did a good job of putting it together. Lawrence, did you have anything to add? Uh, I just want to also thank our guests for coming on and uh, and for their presentations, and uh, I wish them the very best and their continuing effort to uh, change uh, and make USDA a better place for all. All right. Thank, thank you. you, everyone. i got to cut this short. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank, thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back again. <laughs> okay, good. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night.